Welcome back to Pod is a Woman. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And it's the day after election day. We have the perfect guest to help us make sense of everything, who is Brittany Packnett Cunningham. She's an award-winning educator, organizer, social justice activist, writer, and expert at cutting through the noise. But first, let's dive into where things stand as of today. I know they're changing constantly, but as of this recording, did you guys expect the race to be as close as it is? Oh, my God. It should not be this close. I mean, not after being impeached, not after four years of sexism and misogyny and Islamophobia and homophobia and every phobia out there. We are literally the laughingstock on a world stage. He's destroyed all of our economic gains. We're looking at a disaster of a pandemic response and close to 230,000 people are dead. And we're looking at 70 million people who cast their vote for him. That's a hard million people. Yeah, that's the hardest thing for me because, you know, we hoped for this complete repudiation of Trump and everything he stands for, everyone who's lost their lives, racism in full display, everything that you just talked about, Darian, threatening the very fabric of our democracy. And seeing that all of these folks still then were able to hold their nose and millions of people either tolerated or liked what they saw over the past four years, I mean... I feel that we need to address what does this say about our country? Well, guys, I don't know. I have a little bit different view in the sense that, um, look, I think I expected it to be close in some way. I really wished we would have pulled off Florida so that we could have known this last night. But the fact that we were at all close in Texas and that we are fighting for any votes in Georgia, you know, I disinformation sells. Trump has created a cult. Fox News's ratings have gone up and they are giving out this disinformation that includes, you know, President Obama spied on Donald Trump. No, he did not. Like the fact that they're saying, you know, President Trump has created this uh, massive economy. No, he has not. He propped up an economy that was based on data by deficit spending, spending from our kids' piggy banks. But we are not telling the American people the truth. And I think we have a long way to go to have that truthful conversation and to change this media narrative. I think it's really irresponsible that the media didn't listen to the Biden campaign when they were saying this is going to be close and that they were talking about this big blowout because America, unfortunately, is divided. I don't believe that we're divided on a lot of issues. I believe we're divided by our social media channels, by the world in which we're living, and we believe that we're right. I don't think we can put this all on the media's lap because, you know, Trump voters did not Maybe we could say in 2016 did not know exactly what they were going to get. And, you know, we could be really swayed by messaging. But people have open eyes now. Like his cruelty was on display for Americans. You know, it is not something that's a hypothetical anymore. Well, to both of your points, I mean, to be honest, we're looking at a America that is very divided and the conversations are being had with the media and on social media instead of real conversations, real hard conversations that need to take place at dining room tables across this country. People aren't talking to one another about what exists and what is tearing at the fabric of our country and what the Trump campaign has done is truly exploited that. Yeah. And and look, like at the end of today... 
I think we will know that Vice President Biden will be the next president of the United States. We're going to have the leads to get over 270 electoral college votes. But President Trump continues to sow disinformation and say that this is rigged and say that where are all these mail-in ballots coming from? Well, the mail-in ballots are coming from the place that you told everybody not to vote. We banked this widespread early because we got people in the middle of a global pandemic to vote. So from what I understand, Wisconsin is in for Biden. Nevada will come in for Biden. We're waiting for Vegas. Michigan's going to come in for Biden. Pennsylvania is trending very heavily towards Biden. So he may end up with a larger vote spread. My worry is the Senate races. I can't believe that we don't see the hypocrisy of Mitch McConnell, of Lindsey Graham, Like, these people are hypocrites. And so I'd love to see a new generation of leaders. And I don't think that we did as well as Democrats recruiting Senate candidates as we could have. I'm glad John Hickenlooper and I'm glad Mark Kelly won. But... Well, I, I don't want to gloss over the bail-in ballots that still haven't been counted. Because yeah. uh, what you just mentioned about what Trump did late last night, or we should say early, early in the morning, yeah, right. um, I mean... That's voter suppression from the president of the United States. There are a huge number of mail-in votes still to count, legally cast ballots. And and it's funny because we saw Pence try to walk it back a little bit in his statement right after where he said, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, we're hopeful this is going to go our way. But, you know, even though we expected Trump to say something like this, I don't think anyone listening or any of us are surprised that he wanted to cast this doubt on the election. That was so stunning to hear from the lips of the president of the United States. You know, we, stunning, we deserve a free and fair election. And that's exactly it. And we look at not only is he talking about these mail-in votes, he's say, he said last night that people that were still in line when the polls closed, that their vote should not be counted. He is all about people not having their vote counted. And you look at democracy and what we are based as a country on, and I can't imagine not wanting to have every single vote count. I know. Counting votes is not stealing an election. It's not. It's what democracy is about. It's Yeah, it's the point of an election. Yeah. No, and look, when the votes come in, I still believe, like, it's... It's going to go to Vice President Biden. Vice President Biden will be the next president of the United States, but he's going to walk into a Washington that remains divided. And the only way that Washington works for the American people is if people go to Washington and they don't just resist, that they have ideas, that they bring ideas. Like, I want to challenge the Republican senators to tell us what their plan is on health care. And how are we going to do that is going to be really important. So look, we're, we're, we are just at the beginning of, you know, all of these issues, even with, you know, Vice President Biden getting into office. I I also believe that we will have a, a President Biden this week. And I also agree with you that this conversation can't end, but not only about, you know, what our, our House and Senate looks like, um, what our local races look like, but what the identity of our country is going to look like moving forward, because we can't turn away from what this election has laid bare. And this is a conversation about identity, about narrative, about race, about gender. I mean, this is a, a much larger conversation. And we have now laid bare to the world where we stand as Americans and the fact that we are that deeply divided about how we see the, the fabric of our nation. So 
these are going to be hard conversations that we need to continue to have. I think you're, no, right. you're right. Well, our next guest is actually the perfect person to talk about this with because she's someone who does not shy away from talking about the social justice implications and the longer term implications about our elections and what we need to continue to do, which is Brittany Packnett Cunningham. So we have a long, in-depth interview with her and let's just go to that now. We are so excited to welcome Brittany Packnett Cunningham to the show today. In addition to her work as a social justice activist, organizer, and educator, Brittany is also founding member of The Meteor and host and executive producer of the new weekly podcast, Undistracted. Thank you so much for being with us today on such a, a mellow news day, Brittany. <laughs> Thanks for having me. There are a couple of things happening across <laughs> yeah, the world. Yeah, there's a couple of things going on right <laughs> now. <laughs> Well, look, as we wait patiently for mail-in votes to come in today, and we're cautiously optimistic for a Biden victory on this side, mm -hmm. it's hard to shake the fact that this election will, is not going to be the resounding repudiation of Trump that we were hoping for. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling today? I am feeling uh, like I'm glad I chose to be a disciple of disciplined hope. <laughs> I, I heard that I heard the phrase the discipline of hope for the first time when I was a teacher. There are a lot of educational texts with this idea about discipline, hope or critical hope. And it's a hope that actually surveys the field, right? That is not unrealistic about our circumstances, but that is also not unrealistic about the many, many ways that human beings have gotten creative and innovative and used all of our bravery and courage to fight back anyway. Um, and to really solve things that looked previously impossible. So I woke up today after sleeping for a couple of hours and praying very intently before I took that little nap. Um, I woke up feeling like I was ready to be patient because I want every vote counted. That's what we should want every election cycle. Right. Um, and I woke up knowing that no matter what the work is ahead, um, we're like, we're, we're going to get it done. I think that there's a, like everybody else, I was very prayerful that there would be a very strong mandate on Trumpism, on white supremacy, on patriarchy. But if this is white supremacy's last stand, and I hope it is, it is going to go down swinging. We can expect this. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when folks say we're going to eradicate enslavement in this country, enslavers didn't just kindly moved to the side. I mean, they fought an entire war to preserve what they would call their way of life, even though that way of life was um, catastrophic to my ancestors. So in some ways, I'm disappointed. In other ways, I am um, resolute because I don't know that I expected something completely different than what we got. But either way, our marching orders are really clear. That's true. It's so interesting that you talk about being prayerful and hopeful. I, last night I was having so much anxiety and I found myself praying for the first time about an election since um, 2008 when Barack Obama won. Mm -hmm. And I just think about that old Lincoln phrase, being driven to your knees because you have nowhere else to go. Yeah. And last night I just had such significant anxiety and a lot reminded me of the 2016 election mm -hmm. night anxiety. And I to think, you know, the polls were wrong again. Yeah. How do you think it was that we got it so wrong again after everything we went through in 2016? 
I think people lie. Like, <laughs> I know that that sounds yeah. really cut and dry, but I think people know well enough to know that they are supposed to be ashamed of offering tacit and literal approval to white supremacy and patriarchy. So they don't tell pollsters that they will do it. I think that's how we got the proportion of white women that voted for Donald Trump in 2016. I'm very interested to see what that number is um, as as the final votes are tallied this cycle. Um, but yeah, I think I think that people lie. I think that we always knew that there were flaws in polling, that it was never a perfect science, and that there are voices that are overdialed and voices that are underdialed. Um, so yeah, I, I also just I also just do not put it past people to lie, especially when yeah. we've allowed folks to treat being a Trump supporter like an actual social identity, like race or gender mm-hmm. or a nation yeah. of origin or sexual orientation. We've allowed people to act like opposition to Trump is an opposition to their personhood. And we've allowed people to carry this kind of victim banner that says, you know, I've lost friends because I support Trump or I've lost family because I support Trump. Well, that was a choice. You were not born a Trump supporter. You were not born somebody who clearly approves of, if not benefits from white supremacy. Um, So you made that choice and there are consequences to dealing with that. And I think that because we as a society, I think especially in the media, have not been really clear about that distinction. We've allowed people to carry around this victim badge, um, uh, which means that they will go to a pollster and lie instead of actually examine that choice uh, and choose to make a different one. I think that's right. And I mean, does polling even matter anymore is where I am. I mean, this is the same question I just interviewed very early this morning, Soledad O'Brien, for this week's episode of Undistracted. And this is the exact same question I asked her. Does polling really matter? Um, And there is, I think her answer was not only really smart, but it was informed by being um, a veteran of news media that polls give pundits something to talk about. Right. Uh, There is an urgency one can communicate with a poll number, whether the urgency is real or not, uh, that can help you drive ratings, drive viewership. Um, And it is not to say that we should never be measuring how people feel, but it is to say that we should never be putting more stock in what people are willing to tell a pollster than the pattern should allow for. And the pattern, especially over the last two election cycles, two presidential election cycles, is that they are not everything they are cracked up to be. I mean, I got on Twitter last night and there were a couple of pollsters whose names were trending. Like people were like, you lied to me again. And I just think people are. I mean, fool me, fool me once, fool me twice. At a certain point, you're like, "We've, we've seen this play out. Exactly. It was, it was pretty, it was dramatic as Twitter normally is, but it was that exact point, Alejandra. It, you are telling me over and over again to feel urgent about something yeah. that ultimately I'm not going to have an answer to until the thing is done. Right. The only poll that counts are, are voter tallies. Like the only actual definitive poll is how people voted. Yeah. And there's only so much projection we can do. Right. Absolutely. 
You know, I, I, early in the podcast, we talked about the cultish following that President Trump has really developed and how, you know, with a cult, it is so difficult to make inroads on policy or, you know, like anything that he's actually saying. Mm-hmm. And last night, Fox News was making a big deal of the gains that Trump had in communities of color. Um, I know that he's taken his argument that the economy needs to work for all and the Democrats have taken these communities for granted. What do you make of that? I think uh, he has become very adept at propaganda. Black unemployment was on the way down when you all left yes. the White House, when your team <laughs> yeah. left the White House. Uh, there are so many improvements that the black community experienced, that communities of color experienced under the Obama-Biden years that are not to be taken for granted. Uh, Everything from cash for clunkers, because I even remember that program, to um, obviously winning Obamacare and the very material ways that affected people, right? I I was young enough to, I had a, a job that provided me health insurance, but if I didn't, I was of age to be able to stay on my mom's health insurance, which would have made all the difference in the world. Um, HBCU funding that Trump likes to take credit for yeah. as if <laughs> our first black president was not extremely intentional um, in making large provisions for historically black colleges and universities. Uh, and And to be very clear, and I say this, knowing that I did the work with the Obama White House on policing, and we pushed and pushed to make sure that those decommissioned, that that decommissioned military equipment stopped going to local police departments, only for Trump to come in and quietly reverse that rule, for him to pull President Obama's 21st Century Policing Task Force report off of the DOJ website, for him to do all of these quiet things and then tout himself as the greatest thing since sliced bread or Lincoln, as it were, for black people because he has somehow personally solved black unemployment and uh, criminal justice is not only inaccurate, it is an intentional lie. Yes. So I think that, and in the era of disinformation, knowing that just like in 2016, Black communities in particular have been targeted by digital disinformation and that foreign actors have been uh, exploiting the racial tensions in this country. Knowing that, we need to get ever more serious about shoring up the truth in communities of color. Um, Not because communities of color are dumb or low information, but because when you are targeted by people who know how to spread disinformation because they've been doing it for literal generations, then you have to guard yourself against it. And we just have to be really intentional and serious about that. So I am, you know, his his disinformation campaign continues just like he basically declared victory last night when all the votes are not counted um, and several states are not declared. But uh, we have an opportunity to repudiate that as we move forward yeah. um, and to be people who keep telling the truth and thereby show the powers that be that the truth matters deeply to us. That's I think true. he was also making a tactical move to try to uh, be it, it, make it seem like it's not a cast a, a vote you're casting for racism to white people. Oh, and yeah. I think that that's another thing that we have to really tackle because, um, you know, 
President Trump has proved time and time again mm-hmm. that his policies are racist. And so, you know, do not let him fool you. Um, but also, how racist do you have to be for the president basically to say, I have a black friend and that erase yeah. everything else he's ever Everything. Like, <laughs> can we just be honest about that? It's really But you know what? It's like we, we put so much emphasis also on, you know, communities of color and how it is that they're voting. But when we're looking at the larger identity and the personhood piece of what you're talking about and what it says about the state of this country generally and white voters that locking kids mm-hmm. in cages, racism, separating kids from their parents as a Latina, like this was, I mean, this was something that was deeply personal to our community that these aren't deal breakers, yeah. you know, because I feel like a lot of the onus is always like on communities of color to be the bottle stop. Yeah. But these should be deal breakers for everyone. For everyone. Yeah. And they are not. And that is precisely the thing that we have to keep reckoning with and uh, it is going to be up to people who share that privilege to be pushing their peers. A lot of white people are going to have another awkward Thanksgiving. Very like much the Thanksgiving so. is going to be tough again and it's going to be over Zoom. So if you need to go off camera for a second so you can scream into a pillow and then come back and finish checking Uncle John, do what you need to do. But have the conversation, tell the truth and set the expectation that if people are going to be in your life and share your space, that they have to share your values. Uh, Cause racists are just, they are not ashamed enough for me anymore. <laughs> like Mm-mm. White supremacists are not ashamed enough for me anymore. Uh, it has led to an emboldening of violence. It has most certainly led to a very close election. Uh, and uh, I need you to be more ashamed uh, than it takes to just lie to a pollster, but still go vote for Trump. Well, so um, on that point, Brittany, it's interesting you mentioned that because my family, you know, they're traditional Republicans from Kansas. They're, you know, folks who um, and I actually find like I've moved so many of them over the years to the Democrats column. And Mm -hmm. it's actually not by um, not hearing them out. It's by trying to hear them out and then explain the disinformation or the misinformation that they have and then give them the resources to really look for that information themselves to empower. And so slowly mm-hmm. but surely, my family, like my my mom was a huge Hillary supporter. She was, I mean, she was just sick about all of this yeah. that's going on. And so it is, it's, it, this is one of the things that I think it's going to be an interesting time to see how we can make progress together, right? Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that there are ways, obviously, you can do that in ways that I can't, which means that that is your responsibility, right? And it is a good thing that you have taken it. I always tell people that asking questions is a really powerful tool, that the Socratic method can invite people into their own learning and help people start to unravel the inconsistencies in their belief system. So, you know, when you start asking people, where did you hear that? Who first taught you that? Where did you learn that idea? Has that idea actually ever manifested in your real life or did you read it somewhere? Well, what was the source? Do you trust that source? Why do you trust that source? Why do you not trust this source? There are questions to be asking people, not to put them on the defense, but rather to suggest and to offer up the idea that everything they think they have figured out might not be the way that they think it is. Right. 
And I think that these are conversations that we're having at the dinner tables and with our families all across the country. And it's such a challenging time when you look at a race that was supposed to be a referendum on this presidency and the xenophobia and homophobia and misogyny that exists Mm -hmm. and comes from it. But now we're seeing this morning, we're all waking up with no sleep because we were all (laughs) up last night to a morning that still, you know, holds so much uncertainty. Why do you think the races, especially in Wisconsin and Michigan are so close right now? So we are talking necessarily and correctly about how attractive white supremacy remains for a large swath of this nation. That's right. We're also going to have to talk, though, about the pervasiveness of voter suppression. Mm -hmm. And both of those things are fruit of the same tree. Um, And both of those things have been, unfortunately, highly effective in this election. I mean, we can look at Florida as an example. You cannot tell the story of Trump going to Florida without telling the story of Ron DeSantis, whose election people still question because of voter suppression, uh, disenfranchising, once again, 1.4 million Floridians who were able to regain their right to vote after a long, hard fight led by fellow formerly incarcerated people. The people of Florida very clearly said that they wanted those folks to have their rights back. There was a ballot initiative, Amendment 4 passed, and Ron DeSantis and the GOP came in and undermined the will of the people. They said these fines and fees have to be paid first. Well, that is a poll tax. So then what happened? People like LeBron James, Far be it for me to be a fan of him, but Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> they, I mean, I love LeBron. I'm talking about Michael Bloomberg. Far, but like they came in and they put a bunch of their money behind paying those fees. And then what happened a couple of days ago? Donald Trump gets up on stage and starts mocking who? LeBron James. Mm-hmm, of course. So there was an intentional, strategic, direct assault on the franchise of mostly low-income people. Um, I won't even say mostly people of color because if you look at the numbers, plenty of white folks were caught up in that web of disenfranchisement too. Mm -hmm. Um, But Trump doesn't win Florida without most of those 1.4 million people thinking that the barrier still existed between them and the ballot box. I read a story on Twitter yesterday of a a woman who lives in Maryland who had a former felony conviction and did not know that the law had changed four years ago. So she's sitting on her porch smoking a cigarette and it's her neighbor who says, no, you can vote. (laughs) And of course she's like, I'm frightened. I don't want to go and vote and then get thrown back in jail Mm -hmm. because that is the narrative that continues to persist. Um, I helped BET run their uh, Reclaim Your Vote initiative, and it was really important to me and to us that we do everything we could to inform formerly incarcerated people of their rights because so many more people are able to vote than realize it. Um, And yes, we win the policy game, but the narrative game matters just as much Mm because if the people don't get the information about the new policy, they can't act accordingly. Mm -hmm. So that is but one example. And we watched 
terrible suppression in Wisconsin during the primaries. We saw the closing of polling places when there should have been more during a pandemic. Uh, We know what Louis DeJoy has been doing to the United States Postal Service, and there are still 300,000 ballots that are unaccounted for and people who are checking their tracking every day and they're seeing no progress. Uh, we know what happened in, in, in Michigan and in Pennsylvania and all of these places, not only with traditional voter suppression, but with the kind of intimidation that Trump requested from his supporters. That when he told them to stand back and stand by, when he told them to go watch at the polls and make sure that no fraud happens, those folks understand that code. They, they know they were supposed to go and intimidate voters. Um, mm-hmm. And so all of that stuff is happening and you do not get a close race, especially in these battleground states, without targeted and intentional suppression tactics continuing to wage war against marginalized communities. Well, let's stay on that for a second. Mm-hmm. But now we have a president openly trying to disenfranchise voters. I mean, it, it was stunning. I, my stomach just clenched watching it. So it's like, what is the work ahead for us? Because no matter who wins, and and I do firmly believe that that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will win, but you've kind of, you let something out of, out of the bag now, having a president be so brazen. That's right. You did let something out of the bag and he's been letting it out of the bag since he decided to put his hat in the uh, ring for president, frankly, since before then, right? He was letting the cat out of the bag with his birtherism. He was letting the cat out of the bag with the Central Park Five. He's letting the cat out of the bag with how he treats um, his employees who are not born in America, with how he treats women. Um, so we, you know, Maya Angelou said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. And he has mm-hmm. been consistent. That is the one thing we can say for Donald Trump. He has been consistently terrible the entire time that we have been subjected to him. Um, So I think what is necessary in this moment is first for us to stop pretending what we are about what we are dealing with. We actually don't have time to keep being surprised about things that have been painfully obvious for a long time. I remember back in 2016, I was sitting on a panel that was co-located with it, with the DNC and I use the word fascism and people audibly gasped. Like it was like I <laughs> yeah. said a curse word. I was like, "Oh, did we not know?" <laughs> That's Are what you we surprised? were dealing with, right? Like this is, and this is at that time an attempted authoritarian regime. Like this is a guy who he does not want to be president. He wants to be king at best, dictator at worst. So, similarly, we cannot afford to be surprised by propaganda lies white supremacy, xenophobia, patriarchy, hatred. Those are the things that he ran on. And because he was rewarded for those things in 2016, he thinks that those things are not only still okay, but that they are the right choice. So we actually can't afford to be surprised by anything he does. Do we need to challenge it at every step? Absolutely. But let's stop wasting time being shocked by... um, Things that we always we always knew the GOP was trying to suppress votes. They people are frustrated who are on his side because he's saying the quiet part out loud, right? Um, so first we need to stop being 
surprise. Secondly, we need to get serious about ending voter suppression before an election year. And it is important that we credit all of the organizers and the organizations and the lawyers in particular who fight this day in and day out before it becomes trendy to talk about it every two to four years. Can you tell Um, us like right now what some of these great organizations that we should support are because again, I I don't want us to get complacent after this moment because the fight continues. And so where can we put our attention and our money? Put your attention, your money, your time, your energy into organizations like Black Voters Matter, uh, like um, uh, the National, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, like the Lawyers uh, Committee on Civil Rights, led by Kristen Clark, uh, like the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, led by Vanita Gupta, your former colleague, um, the ACLU. Uh, There are... uh, so many organizations who are doing the hard work. They are putting up the lawsuits when nobody is paying attention. They are pushing for better policy at the in state houses. Uh, they are um, helping to fund uh, the fines and fees and the restitution that is often having to be paid by formerly incarcerated people, which reminds me another one of those great organizations is the Florida Rights Restoration Commission, co-led by Desmond Mead and his his wife. Desmond is formerly incarcerated himself, and he and other formerly incarcerated organizers are the ones who pounded the pavement to get amendment for on the ballot and then pounded the pavement to get amendment for passed uh, with an overwhelming majority. And now we're doing the work to raise the money to pay those fines and fees off who are still trying to change the laws and the the regulations in Florida and around the country and who are trying to educate and inform formerly incarcerated people about their rights. Um, So those are just a few of the places that could use our support 24, 7, 365 every year, not just election year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and we know we know that if Vice President, when Vice President Biden wins, yes. it will be because of women, right? Women have overwhelmingly um, sided with Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Um, you know, but the, the question is, and, and we'll see Kamala Harris become the first female vice president, mm-hmm. which should not be overlooked. This is a significant accomplishment. Um, but, you know, we really have a lot of work ahead of us to unite women. For too long, I would argue, people have been divided over this false choice of, uh, of life. You know, mm-hmm. I my mom gave my mom and dad gave up a child for adoption. And mm. um, and, you know, like they were forced to into that decision. And I think a lot of people talk about life, but they don't actually support um, children. Um, How do we actually create a multiracial, multi-socioeconomic coalition of women who can push for peace, prosperity, education, and opportunity for all? I think the first thing we do is tell a more truthful narrative about how choice became a wedge issue. Yeah. The truth is that when the right wing and Christian conservatives in particular lost the segregation battle, they realized that in order to build the kind of coalitions they needed, they could get other religious folks, Catholics, um, and, and people who were ready to leave the fight after the segregation battle was lost, 
back into the fold with the issue of abortion. So for a lot of these people, it was never about life, right? Um, it was always about power yeah. and maintaining power by any means necessary. The, mm. the documents are there. We have the statements from the folks who were in those early meetings. The history has been written, but the story is not being told very broadly. So folks should know what is true about why this is the wedge issue that it is, about why there are people who say, I am a single issue voter and that issue is abortion, right? Um, I am also very, very clear that as a black woman, my bodily autonomy and, and the bodily autonomy of other people like me has been severely restricted over generations. You cannot know what happened with the reported forced sterilizations right. in ICE facilities. You cannot be disgusted by that and then also say that women should, and, and people who can get pregnant should not have full autonomy over our person. The two yes. don't match. Right. Um, and so I think that we have to better own the narrative about where this came from, what it actually means, and how we can actually build coalitions about things that are about, like I said, a, a real autonomy, not just bodily yeah. autonomy, but autonomy over our futures, autonomy over our families, autonomy over the possibilities, having real safe communities for all of us. Um, I think the other narrative win that is really necessary, the other cultural shift that is really necessary is that people, women of all races and backgrounds and religions and uh, sexual orientations and gender identities that we actually see our fates as bound up with one another. Yeah. That it yeah. is going to be impossible to do this if white women keep seeing their wins as separate from black women and black women keep seeing our wins as separate from Latinas and Latinas keep seeing their wins as separate from indigenous women and Asian American Pacific Islander women. And if cis women keep seeing our wins as separate from trans women, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera, right? If, if, if able-bodied women keep seeing our wins as separate from disabled women, all of that serves to divide an otherwise powerful coalition. Yep. That when marginalized people actually get together, there are more of us <laughs> with more power uh, than there are the people who stand against us. And it is the function of supremacy. It is the function of patriarchy to keep us in competition with one another. Yeah. The sooner we realize we are rewarding patriarchy and white supremacy for how it has divided us by remaining in competition, the sooner we can get on with, with being, and forgive the pun, stronger together. Right. <laughs> and when we focus on what separates us, I just it moves us further and further away from the goal of what our country should be. And yeah. that's to be united. And Brittany, I think there's a way for us to tell the truth about what is 
different about our experiences, but actually come together about what the solutions are going to be. That we build intersectional solutions that end up being efficient and not end up being sufficient rather and not just efficient quick wins for certain people that leave other people out in the cold. So yeah, we have to talk about how life is different for all of the groups of women I just named and more. But we come together around the table to say, okay, so how do we figure out the way forward um, that actually solves all of our problems and not just some? That's where the unity comes in. That's right. And as you talk about, you know, unity and what a way forward looks like, we always ask our guests about hope. But I'm going to ask you two questions. I'm going to ask you first, what gives you hope? And then also, especially this morning, what are you doing right now to protect your peace? Because this is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like I said, I I believe in disciplined hope, which uh, is not what we in the education space would call hokey hope, right? It is not this kind of unfettered optimism that pretends like the world as it is doesn't exist. It is hope that Uh, assesses the challenge, but that also finds promise and potential in people. So I really find my hope in history. I find my hope in Harriet Tubman and in Ida B. Wells and in Michelle Obama and uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. I find my hope in people who accomplish the impossible and many of whom are still doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they can keep going, then there's no reason why we can't. And and if they can win, there's no reason why we can't win too. Um, and I am protecting my peace um, by taking breaks. I haven't watched TV yet today. Um, the only reason why I stayed up last night was because I had to do some streaming hits. But I um, I told my friends to go to bed. I was like, you all go to bed. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Get some, you know, there were people I know in the news media who stayed up all night long. I said, no, I'm going to at least Mm-mm. get this nap in. Um, because I am clear about what I can control and what I can't. And what I am unable to control is how quickly the numbers will come in from Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, uh, what I can control is how well I care for this vessel I've been given. So I'm eating on time. I'm taking breaks when I need to. I'm pacing myself. And I've got good people in my life, including my husband, to keep me on track with that. Thank you for what you just said about telling the truth and coming together and, you know, our path forward. Because I don't know about you guys, but this is exactly the conversation that I needed to have today, what we needed to hear today as we're kind of wading through and waiting right now. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us today, Brittany, and and sharing your wisdom with us. And I want to encourage folks to check out Brittany's new podcast, Undistracted. I I love that interview, you guys, because I have been following Brittany for years and she always brings a new perspective to my eyes. And I just I think that as someone who wants to learn about all perspectives and the future and how we can be a more inclusive America, I learned so much from Brittany. I think it was just really beautifully and eloquently put um, the way that she portrayed the state of the country and the state of this election and while laying bare what the real story is, she also was able to present a level of hope that I don't think I had coming into this morning. 
Yeah, Brittany is all about real talk. And frankly, that's what we need this morning after we've been spun by pundits, by pollsters, by candidates, like we just need to talk about what this all means and how we move forward and tell the truth about, you know, what it is that this means for our country. And so I, I found her so refreshing. And and frankly, I, I feel a lot better after talking to her this morning. Oh, I agree. And look, we have a big job ahead of us to, you know, as Amanda Brown said when she came on the podcast, women made up the majority of voters in this election. But uniting women, making sure that women are actually standing up in defense of Vice President Kamala Harris, like that conversation is one that's going to need to continue for us to actually get to a more equitable America. And I think, you know, what she was talking about, you know, we have, we all have big responsibilities in our communities. And I certainly take that very seriously. And I know that our listeners do. And it is, you know, these are going to be uncomfortable conversations we're going to have with our family members. But the questions are, how do we create the America that it should be that works for everyone economically and educationally and with a social safety net that everyone has that opportunity for the American dream? And frankly, those conversations are not always going to be pretty, you know, like yeah. I don't want to go to a, a, a Hopi kind of kumbaya message because that means a very serious examination about a lot of the unconscious bias that a lot of yeah. us may have and how that has now trickled into the way that we see the future of this country and the opportunities that people have access to. It's not going to be easy. And, no, and no. it's probably going to lead to a lot of very uncomfortable conversations and a lot of protests still, you know, like mm -hmm. I don't see this all just settling down so that we can all go have brunch. Right. No. Right. Well, we, ha I mean, we have to look at ourselves and like you said, Alejandra, have this examination. And as Americans, we have to get comfortable with being wrong. We have to stop saying I need to be right all the time, or yeah. I need to make the right decision. Being wrong means that you're able to change once you identify what the issue is, what that unconscious bias might be, then you're able to really address it and dig deep. And until we can sit down and have that conversation with ourselves, we're not in a place to have it with our family members or our community members. And I look, especially as Brittany talked about the impact of disinformation on the black community. And, you know, as a country, you don't erase 400 years of oppression in four years. There's a lot of work that's going to have to take place after this election, after we know the results, after the inauguration. And it's not just going to be on Joe Biden. It's on us as neighbors and as community members to come together around all that can possibly unite us. So I was really happy that she provided that perspective. Absolutely. And the same goes for the Latino community and disinformation. You know, uh, there's a lot of conversations right now about the Latino vote and all of that. But there has also been so much misunderstanding about who this community is. Mexican-Americans in California, very different from Mexicans in Texas, very different from Cuban-Americans in Miami, very different mm -hmm. from Puerto Ricans in Orlando. You know, and people have been saying this. This is not um, some like big revelation, but we're not seeing it sink in. Right. We're not seeing people just understand that there's a misunderstanding about a community that you have to actually treat as not a monolith. So, again, conversations we shouldn't just be having every four years around an election. And so let's keep having them.
Well, and generational change, right? Like this is the thing about women is that we have a multiplying effect. When we are the mothers of young children and we're teaching them how to really embrace our differences because our diversity is our superpower, that is going to change the trajectory of this country. And so, you know, as much as I am glad that I had so many aunts crossover and so many family members, you know, who who are like very conscious that they want a more fair America, the transformation we have that's in the generations to come, that's a big responsibility that we have to bear. And you know what? Let's recognize the the progress when we have it, which is, you know, our POTUS of the week is somebody who is really showing the direction of progress in this country, which is uh, Sarah McBride, who is our first trans state senator in U.S. history. She won her state Senate race in Delaware. Congratulations to Sarah. And Sarah is a White House Office of Public Engagement alumni. So we'd love to see people continuing on to do really amazing things. And we're so proud of her accomplishment. And we are so proud of all of the women who worked on the Biden-Harris campaign. I know Caroline Gray, who was in charge of distributed organizing early, she went to town on creating a way that during a pandemic we could get people out to vote. And there were groups of women, including Team Gold, that were just out there every single day volunteering, and they will make this election. So big shout out to all of the women who did every day, every call that they could. And shout out also to all of the parents who got up, got their kids ready for e-learning today, made breakfast, put on TV, and tried to act like everything was normal in the midst of this absolute chaos and probably and potentially a little hungover and sleep deprived. So good on you, moms and dads. Um, I'm looking at the two of you with all this makeup on, and I, uh, you guys are super women. I don't know how you do it. I, I had to get up for a 7 a.m. call with Europe. So I've been like at it, you guys. <laughs> right back at it. Coffee and a prayer. <sighs> Superwoman moms. Well, listen, by the time we talk to you guys again, we're going to have the results of this election. But, you know, we are all going to chart our path moving forward together. So we look forward to talking about what this all means and where we go from here with you guys next week. Be safe, Al. <laughs>